is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. First things first, I want to talk about Jacob DeGrom, his dominance this year, like always, like we're used to. Is it time for him to demand a trade? And then also, we know that Julian Edelman announced his retirement today, and the question to that is, is he going to be a Hall of Famer? Also, we got, should we take the 76ers seriously that they still remain the top seed in the Eastern Conference? And then LeBron's Instagram Instagram post with Anthony Davis on the sideline saying that there is a thunderstorm on the way. Does the Lakers still have enough with James at the helm, given that they're missing such an extended period of time? It looks like Anthony Davis will be missing at least another two weeks and LeBron missing another three weeks. Can the Lakers still remain a high enough seed where they are a threat? How are they going to come back? And then also to wrap up, we got Steph Curry dropping 53 last night. He passes Wilt Chamberlain for the all-time winning score in Warriors history. So to that, I say, where is Steph Curry going to rank on the all-time list? So first things first, let's get started. I want to talk about the New York Mets quick. Jacob DeGrom, New York Mets. If you're a Mets fan, cover your ears, or you want to keep scrolling, you want to, t- you want to X out of this, totally understand. Going to have a little slander here. First things first, the three guarantees in life, death, taxes, and the Mets spoiling a Jacob DeGrom masterpiece. It's too much now. It's just start after start, year after year, Jacob DeGrom gives you a gem. The Mets somehow find a way to blow it, whether it's the bullpen blowing the lead, whether it's the bats not giving him any run support. No matter what it is, Jacob DeGrom is just not racking up the wins he should. The way Jacob DeGrom has been pitching for the Mets since about 2018, he should be getting literally 25 to 30 wins a year. That's the kind of dominance he had. If I'm not mistaken, DeGrom, since in his entire or since 2018, I believe, is 36 and 42 with close to a sub two ERA. Let that sink in for a second. 36 and 42 with the best ERA in baseball. Are you kidding me? DeGrom has type of a talent where he could be regarded as the greatest pitcher of this generation, next to Clayton Kershaw, right? But the thing with Clayton Kershaw, yeah, he has the Cy Youngs. He's had the dominance basically throughout the 2010 decade, right? We know how great he's been. But as Kenny Smith as Kenny Smith once said, sure, this is a basketball reference, but it's referred to in all sports. You make your name in the regular season, but you make your fame in the postseason. And Clayton Kershaw, why is he not regarded as the greatest starting pitcher of all time? The reason for that is his playoff flaws, especially against the Cardinals. Year after year, he is not the guy he is in the regular season. It's two different pitchers. I mean, he gets riled and he gets shelled. And then when he really faces the, this, excuse, the St. Louis Cardinals, he gets absolutely lit up like a Christmas tree. So with that being said, that's why Clayton Kershaw is not on that echelon of greatness in terms of all-time starting pitchers. Jacob DeGrom, on the other hand, he is that dude. He can be that guy. But the problem is playing with the New York Mets. They're not a championship caliber team. They haven't been to the postseason since 2016, where he didn't even get a start because they got eliminated in the wild card round against the Giants when Noah Syndergaard got that start. And his only other postseason experience is 2015. But his dominance, his prime, his apex has been from 2018 to today. And as great as the Grom is, as great as the contract he's getting, he's getting paid, he's in a big market of New York, right? But he's where is he going to make his fame in the playoffs? Sure, the Mets were projected with the Atlanta Braves to be on top of the NL East and be a threat to come out of to win the NL pennant, right? But that's not looking too good. If Jacob DeGrom goes out every every outing and the Mets aren't getting wins, 
this team's going to struggle to not just get in the postseason, let alone make a run to win the pennant, right? So that's why Jacob DeGrom, at this point, I'm ready to t- say he needs to demand a trade. I know we don't see that in baseball as much. Baseball and the superstars don't as much power as a, a superstar in basketball, especially, which we all know that story where they all tell me LeBron was the guy to do that in terms of player movement, having the power, this and that, to move team to team, right? And then free agents, leave via free agency, have other guys demand trades. Now we're seeing it in football a little bit more. But I think DeGrom could change that with baseball. If he demands a trade and wants out, simply because his team is not winning and not giving him the support that he deserves, I could see him doing that, and I would totally respect it. Because the greatness of Jacob DeGrom can be the greatest pitcher of this generation. But the only way people will give him that title or he can be in that echelon of greatness is him pitching in October and late into October, which he is that guy. I mean, Jacob DeGrom could throw one-on-one his very first pitch and throw one-on-one on his 100th pitch. He's that dude. He is toying with hitters. He already has 21 strikeouts in 14 innings, which is tied for second in the MLB this season alone. He is toying with hitters. Guys don't look like they have a fighter's chance in the box. And he's really only using two pitchers. He has a 93-mile-an-hour slider and a 101-mile-an-hour fastball with tail and late run. He's untouchable. But the second he comes out of the game, the Mets somehow find a way to spoil it, whether it's a bullpen or their lineup just not getting enough hits. Sure, Francisco Lindor has been an awesome addition. I mean, that's a superstar, a switch hitter at the top of the lineup that they could use. Pete Alonso, we know how great he is. You got Michael Conforto on these boys. But at the end of the day, if the Mets aren't getting wins on DeGrom starts, their aspirations to even let alone win the NL pennant, but win the NL East or even sneak into a wild card, you could kiss that goodbye because it's simply not happening. It is simply not happening if Jacob DeGrom's not going to go out there and not get wins. He needs to demand the trade. He should go out and say to the New York Mets, I want to be traded to a championship caliber team because that's the type of pitcher I am. And one thing's for sure, the Mets could get a whole lot in return for him. And every Mets fan's probably crying, please no, please no, please no, because that's the only thing they really got going for him between DeGrom and Pete Alonso. But, I mean, the Mets bullpen is just a disaster. And if they can't close out games, if you can't hand the ball, the ball to, to their bullpen and close out games, they're never going to be successful, let alone their hitting flaws. Washed up Delon Batanzas. Delon Batanzas was a superstar with the Yankees. He's a only pitcher in MLB history to have four or five consecutive seasons with 100, 100 strikeouts or more as a reliever. I mean, he was special. And then between the Achilles injury, now multiple, numerous shoulder injuries. Now he has another shoulder impingement, and he's going to miss an extended period of time. Delon Batanzas is not the pitcher he was with the Yankees. He's not. His fastball dropped close to seven miles an hour. And without that electric fastball, he's not that pitcher. Sure, he's got a devastating breaking ball. But without that velo, he's not that guy anymore. Edwin Diaz is terrible. Let's call a spade a spade. He had a historic year with the Mets and, and I excuse me with the Mariners in 2018. Goes to the Mets in 2019 and could not be worse. And Jeremy's Familia, sure, he was good in 2015 and 2016. Haven't seen it since. Haven't seen it since. He's, he's, he's been awful as well. He's been extremely erratic. He's another guy who could walk the bases loaded, somehow find a way to get out of it. But they don't have a bullpen to close out games. And if DeGrom's going to give you a gem, give you a seven, eight-inning gem, and he's just going to blow it, what's the point to having him on the roster and pay all these guys? they got to figure something out real quick before Jacob DeGrom, his ego comes in the way, or just his pride, or his legacy comes in the way. Because if he wants to be an all-time great, 
He's got to do it in the postseason, which not that it's his fault because he can't control whether the Mets are in the playoffs or not. It's not a sport like basketball where one superstar can really control an entire game or can entirely rebuild a whole team by themselves. And even like in football, you could say to a quarterback to an extent, could take over a team and really carry them to numerous victories. Whether you're Mike Trout and the best player in baseball, he's another guy who I, I believe should want out of, it, of L.A. if they're not going to be winning games. If they're not going to be winning games, he's another guy who, who's played in one – he's been put three playoff games in his entire career and now being regarded as the greatest baseball player of all time. Where is he making his fame? Derek Jeter has the legacy he has because of his being Mr. November, having all those clutch hits in the playoffs. Mike Trout hasn't been doing that. And Jacob DeGrom obviously has not been doing that either. Because we've seen the dominance of Clayton Kershaw, and once he got to the postseason, he's not that dude anymore. We don't even know how Jacob DeGrom is going to be in the playoffs. Sure, I'll put I'll put my house on it that Jacob DeGrom will be the same dude, just given how electric his stuff is. Because whether, whether the month is April, May, or October, his stuff's electric, and that's never going to change. But we still need to see him prove it. We need to see him prove it. And maybe the only way we could see him prove it is if he gets out of New York. At least the New York Mets, rather. We know he would never be traded to the Yankees. The Yankees and Mets will never do business together, especially for the greatest pitcher in the game. But Jacob DeGrom needs out. Jacob DeGrom needs to go because he's never going to have the legacy that he deserves unless the Mets could somehow find a way in the postseason. But they're not going to make the postseason if their bullpen's going to be this bad. And if they're going to keep spoiling gem after gem after gem after masterpiece after masterpiece. Bottom line, period, point blank. I know a lot of Mets fans don't want to hear that right now, but I got to call a spade a spade. Next topic I want to talk about is let's talk, let's talk about Julian Edelman. Julian Edelman retiring from the Patriots, leaving, saying Foxborough out. Is he a Hall of Famer, though? Is Julian Edelman going to make the Hall of Fame? Sure, if you look back to my last point that I just made about Jacob DeGrom and the New York Mets and Kershaw and Mike Trout, as Kenny Smith once said, you make your name in the regular season, you make your fame in the postseason, right? But the thing with Julian Edelman is he's made his fame in the postseason. He's one of the greatest postseason wide receivers of all time. I mean, I believe he's first, right? He's second in catches or yards behind the great Jerry Rice. And anytime you're in the same sense as Jerry Rice, you are doing something right. You're doing something right. But in terms of a regular season wide receiver, Julian Edelman has been an average, your average Joe Schmo wide receiver for a long ex- extended period of time, playing with the greatest quarterback of all time and the greatest coach of all time in Bill Belichick. In terms of catches, I believe he's 250th of all time. And then in terms of yards, he's, I think, 150th of all, of all time, if I'm not mistaken. Julian Edelman has never been a top five wide receiver in his career. Borderline top 10. And if that's the case, that's not Hall of Fame bound. That's not Hall of Fame bound. Top A, a Hall of Fame wide receiver is going to be among the, uh, the elites of the game. Not necessarily your longevity. We know a lot of receivers, running backs as well. They have very short careers, but their peaks were so high, which got them in the Hall of Fame. Even, for example, Kurt Warner, even though this is a quarterback, he didn't have a very long career. He didn't have that great of a career. But his four-year window where he was elite, that's what got him in the Hall of Fame. That's why Kurt Warner's a Hall of Famer, because of the, the, those, those windows, that tight window where he had that peak. Julian Edelman, I don't know if he never he ever really had that peak where he was that dude. 
He could do a little bit of everything. I'm not going to lie. I got to give him this. Sure, he's going to be in the Patriots Ring of Honor 110%. That's not debatable. But making it the Hall of Fame, I don't think he's proven that he is that elite. I mean, even Bill Belichick said how he could catch, he could run, he could block, he could throw, he could tackle. He could do a little bit of everything. And he does it with a little spice. He does it with competitive nature. And he does it with heart. He plays his heart out every single game, no matter whether he's healthy, whether he's hurt, whether he's a little banged up. You know what you got from Julian Edelman. He gave you all he got every single game. But at the end of the day, I don't know if he, I really just don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. I can't call him an all Hall of Famer right now. As great as his postseason resume is, sure, I understand he is a Super Bowl MVP, which is a huge mark on his legacy in terms of getting in. But can you really tell me that he's been an elite wide receiver? I don't. I don't know if I don't know if I could say that. I don't believe he's been an elite wide receiver for an extended period of time, or even a short peak. When what year could you really say that he was a top ten wide receiver in the NFL? What year could you say he's a top ten wide receiver in the NFL? I really can't think of one. Let alone top five. It's getting to a point where in all sports, it's getting too easy for guys to make the Hall of Fame. If you're average for a long period of time, you're guaranteed to get in the Hall of Fame in many sports. For example, Eli Manning will get in the Hall of Fame because he's been an average quarterback for a long period of time. And the Giants won two Super Bowls. Not Eli Manning, the Giants, mainly because their defense and Brady wet the bed. Brady was a disaster in both those Super Bowls. But Eli Manning got all the credit, and he had two Super Bowl runs, which is why he's going to get in the Hall of Fame because from 2014 to 2018 – he was an average quarterback for that long period of time. Eli Manning was never a top five quarterback or even sniffed it. Sure, you could say he was a top 10 quarterback some years in, in the peak of his powers in his prime. But in terms of actually being a top five quarterback, hell no. But he's going to get in. Do I think Julian Edelman will eventually get in? Probably. I, I think he I think he can, given his postseason resume, which is kind of why Eli Manning will get in as well, because he had two Super Bowl runs. Super Bowl runs, even though the Giants never won a playoff game outside of those two Super Bowl runs with Eli Manning under center, which does speak volume. But I know a lot of Giants fans want to ignore that as well. But at the end of the day, Julian Edelman, I can't call him a Hall of Famer. I can't. I think he. I think he's borderline. I think it's close. I think it's very debatable. But with his regular season accolades, it's not elite and it's not that oppressive. He's been a good, he's been an average to good wide receiver for a long period of time, playing with the greatest coach and greatest quarterback of all time. And he's been very reliable. I gotta give him that. Which your best ability is your availability. I get it. But at the end of the day, that's not that's not Hall of Fame now. Hall of Fame is in a cl- is an elite class. I don't think Julian Edelman's that guy. At his size, with his speed, I don't I just don't think he's that guy. I simp- I simply can't call him that. But let me know in the comment section below what you think if Julian Edelman will be a Hall of Famer. Next topic I want to talk about, the Philadelphia 76ers. Are the Sixers time to be taken seriously? We know that the Brooklyn Nets, and especially if you've been following me for a long time, you know how high I've been on the Brooklyn Nets. I've said since day one before Harden's been on this team that the Brooklyn Nets will sleepwalk to the finals. I said they'll have a slow start, which they did even before Harden got there. They'll have a slow start. But once the playoffs come, it's a wrap. It's a wrap because there's no team that can even sniff their talent. And to that, I stand right. I stand that to be true today, and it's not even close. The Philadelphia 76ers 
are the same number one seed that we see the past four or five number one seeds in the Eastern Conference. When people try to say that they're a threat to get out of the East or win the title, but they won't. They won't. They're not that team. Let's take a look. 2017, the Celtics were the number one seed. Nobody, anyone who followed the sport long enough knows that they were not beating the Cleveland Cavaliers, and that's why they got the absolute breaks beat off them. Let along IT being hurt, that's another story. But whether, whether or not it's called spade a spade, the Celtics had no chance against LeBron James and Kyrie Irving Cleveland Cavaliers. In 2018, the Toronto Raptors, I remember they told me that they would beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then LeBron came to town and single-handedly beat the brakes off them. He literally had better, scored more, assisted more, rebounded more, made more fuels on a higher percentage than Kyle Rowry and De- uh, DeMar DeRozan combined in a sweep, let alone that buzzer beater. And then 2019, the Milwaukee Bucks, oh, you got the MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, they won 60 games, right? They were up 2-0 against the Raptors. What happens? They blow that lead. Why? Because they didn't have championship pedigree on that team. 2020, people were so high in the Bucks that they're going to win the title, really. And I was probably the only one who kept saying the Bucks are not legit, the Bucks are fraud, the Bucks are not getting out of the East. And again, they got the brakes beat off them by the five-seed lonely Miami Heat. I think the Philadelphia 76ers are just one of those number one seeds. And I don't even know if they're going to even finish in the top seed of the Eastern Conference. But at the end of the day, it really is irrelevant. It's At least to me, it's irrelevant because it's not doing anything. Because the Sixers are not that team. Sure, Joel Embiid may win MVP this year. But the only thing that's hurting him is the window that he missed of the extended period of time that he missed. And again, last night, 20, 20, 23 minutes, 36 points. I mean, that that's video game type numbers. I mean, if you're decent in NBA 2K, I mean, you could probably do that in 2K. But in terms of championship pedigree, in terms of a playoff team, and then Doc Rivers at, at, as the head coach in LS, that's not a championship caliber team. Joel Beach a great player. Do I do I do I think any team in the East could really match up with him specifically? Maybe the Bucks and Giannis could guard him, could contain him a little bit. But at the end of the day, the Sixers just don't have enough. Ben Simmons is not that dude. Ben Simmons is not a number two option. If you can't shoot, you are not a number two option. I don't care how great you are. I don't care how well you play, make, finish at the rim, defend. Sure, people say Ben Simmons should be the defensive player of the year. That's totally fine, and I completely understand that. But how are you going to close? Who's going to close out games? You Every championship team, that as long as you could think of, had a closer on that team. Last year, you had LeBron. You had Kawhi. You had KD. LeBron again. You had Steph. You had all Kawhi again in 2014. I mean, each year you had someone close. 2013, LeBron really closed out that series in Game 6, and especially in Game 7. You need a closer on a championship team. The Sixers don't have that. Joel Embiid, I still don't know if he can play with his back to the basket. Sure, I mean, he's shooting very well from three. He's shooting above 35%. I think around 37% if I'm not mistaken. He's established a little uh, mid-range pull-up, which at his size, the way he can still get to the rim – and his skill for that size is extremely impressive. I don't know if a center in today's NBA is a true closer and someone you could give the ball to and say, take me there, close out this game, finish the job. I don't think Joel Embiid is that guy. And they still he does not have a true Robin because Ben Simmons, like we all know, cannot shoot a jump shot. When in, in a postseason game, teams are now know how to build that wall. Ben Simmons is not going to be able to get to the rim. They're going to dare him to shoot, and we know he won't shoot. We know Ben Simmons will never take a jump shot, especially in a meaningful game. And then after that, 
Who are they going to? Who are they going to? That's why the Sixers are not no threat. And especially what the Brooklyn Nets have. I mean, they basically have the three best scores in the NBA. If you're going to ask me in order who the best scores are, I would say something like Durant, then Harden, then Kyrie, in probably that order. And if you're going to ask me, they have two guys who can win MVP this year. The only reason Kyrie Irving is not the favorite to win MVP right now is because he randomly decides to miss games because he feels like it. But when he's playing, he's had a better season than everybody else in the league. He's had a better season than everybody else in the league. And I don't want to hear any other discussion. Your only logical argument, like I just said, is that he randomly decides to miss games, which is a, is a logical argument. But what he's done on the floor, giving you about 28 points per game, having a 40-50-90 season, and he takes tougher shots than any player in the NBA. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. He pulls up in traffic from three. He pulls up on the mid-range, could stop on a dime. Has a post-fadeaway bank. I still don't know how he gets that off. A lot of his moves, I still don't know how he gets off. His acrobatic finishes at the rim. I mean, whether it's one, two, or three defenders, no matter if it's a six-footer six or a seven-footer, he could finish through them. Still don't know how that's possible. But the difficulty in each shot he takes and the way he closes for the Nets, Kyrie Irving is their closer. When they need a bucket, they go to Kyrie. It's almost an automatic bucket. He's been that reliable in the clutch. And they have a guy they could do that to. And let alone... Kevin Durant, who's a top three player on the planet Earth, who's just coming back from injury now, and once he gets going, you have another guy to rely to in the fourth quarter in a playoff game. Sure, people may say that, oh, Harden's not that closer. He's not that dude. Well, Harden may, is a league MVP candidate as well, leading the league in assists. He's, doing, he's playing point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. He's playing point guard, leading the league in assists. He took his points per game from the Rockets, probably close to 10 points per game. He's doing exactly what the Nets need. And sure, people say that he flukes out of the postseason. He's not the same guy in the postseason. Sure, that's legit. That's a legitimate argument. But hes you could look at him as the third option. And I don't care what history he has. If James Harden is my number th- three option in a fourth quarter, something on my team is right. And there is no team in the East that can compete with the Nets. They do not – no team has the firepower to go bucket to bucket with them. And, no, and especially – no team has a closer to match with the Nets. That's why they're so unbeatable. And I said that the Nets will get out of the East in 15 games or less. I'm starting to think it's going to be about 13 games. I think maybe one team in the East, and I don't even know if the Sixers could beat them once if they get lucky. But if the Nets are healthy, they may run through the East in literally 13 games. They're that good. They, this team could be one of the most high-powered offenses in the history of basketball next to the 2017 Warriors. Call spade a spade. There's not many teams who go bucket to bucket with them. And the way they could close out games and the way they could simply score the basketball. And let alone Joe Harris shooting about 50% from three. There's too much talent on that roster. The additions of LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin, there's no team. Let alone the NBA, the East has no chance against them. We've known the East has historically just not been as superior as the Western Conference. And as great as the Sixers season looks, as great as our record shows, as great of a season Embiid is, the Brooklyn Nets could take them in four games if at max that series would go five games in the Eastern Conference Finals if the Sixers even make it that far. But now I want to switch over to the Western Conference. Now I want to switch over to the Western Conference, the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers, on the other hand, the Lakers should be concerned. They are in trouble. 
LeBron posts on Instagram that him and Anthony Davis, a picture of him and Anthony Davis, that they'll be coming back. The weatherman predicts a thunderstorm coming. Sure, maybe that's a hype up Laker Nation, hype up the NBA, hype up the media, give the media something to talk about. But I don't know how they're going to return. We don't know how they're going to return. Just because they're returning doesn't mean they're going to be the guys that they were before they got hurt. LeBron James has had one other injury in his career. We know that was in 2019, his first year with the Lakers. And he was a disaster when he came back. Sure, he averaged close to a triple-double, and people love to throw the numbers around. But in terms of his impact to the game, he sucked. He was terrible. LeBron James was terrible when he returned to the Lakers after that groin injury. He looked disinterested. He didn't have a quick titch, twitch. Didn't have a quick t- twitch at all. Was not explosive. Just wanted to get rid of the entire team for Anthony Davis. They were two games out of the eight seed at the time. Still made no push. They looked worse with him than without him. They were, they were terrible. They were simply terrible. LeBron was terrible. And the chemistry that they had was a disaster. But hey, they ended up getting Anthony Davis in that offseason. But this year, this year's a little different, given they won the championship last year. Now Anthony Davis, by his side, they have aspirations to repeat. And now it's the both of them hurt. Anthony Davis has been a guy who's been injury-prone his entire career. I don't know how he's going to come back. We saw what happened with Kevin Durant when he had that calf injury, quote-unquote calf injury slash Achilles injury. He came back too soon. He popped it within the first quarter of an NBA Finals game. But it looks like the Lakers are really taking a precaution for Anthony Davis to come back when he's fully, fully healthy. And it looks like that he's going to come back in another two weeks. His minutes are, The minutes restrictions are going to be there, of course. But how is he really going to come back? And when Davis played this year, he didn't look like Anthony Davis the last year. That was one he was not, he was all not that good. I believe he averaged around 21 points a game, which is not where he used to be. Last year he was giving you 26 a game, which led the team in scoring over LeBron. He didn't look like himself, and now dealing with this injury, which is a very serious injury and something not to take as a joke, I don't know how he's gonna return. And then LeBron on the other hand, year 18, age 36, having probably this is the by the the longest stretch that he's missing an extended period of time, right next to the groin injury in 2019. I don't know how he's going to come back. Just We know how LeBron is the most reliable player in the NBA still at this age. He really tried to play every game this year. We know he was trying to get that play all 72 games. But I don't know how he's going to come back from this. And the Lakers are in deep trouble if they are not themselves. LeBron and Anthony Davis are going to have to play about 42 minutes a game once the postseason starts. Whether that's the first round, second round, or Western Conference Finals, they need to be playing 42 minutes a game once the playoffs start. It doesn't matter when they return. They have to be going all out because they're have, they're going to have a low seed. The, the Denver Nuggets losing Jamal Murray just killed all championship aspirations for them. So if they get matched up against the Nuggets in the first round, they will have a better shot against them. But the West is deep, and the West is good. I still am not a believer of the Utah Jazz. Not a believer of the Phoenix Suns. Sure, they're having a great season as well. Both those teams don't have championship pedigree on them. Donovan Mitchell and Rudy, Rudy Gobert are having great seasons. Those are not championship caliber players. The Phoenix Suns with Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, those boys, sure, they're the number two seed in the West. You've got to give them respect. Again, they do not have championship pedigree on that team. But I think this year it may come down to the Lakers and Clippers assuming health, and that's going to be a dogfight. George Paul, as I call him, 
and skip from Skip Bayless. Got to give him his respect there. George Paul is having one of the best seasons of his career, next to the 2018-2019 season where he finished third in the league MVP. But he's another guy who's been flaring out in the postseason. Kawhi Leonard's having an MVP caliber season. The Clippers are thriving right now at the number three seed in the West, and they got a little chip on their shoulder. They didn't necessarily have championship aspirations this year, given their meltdown last year against the Nuggets. But I think there's a little chip on their shoulder. Now they don't have the pressure of that championship expectations like they did last year being the favorites. There's not as much pressure on them. There's more of just a chip on their shoulder and a fight and a will to get this done and to win. So I think the moment we've been waiting for, the Battle of L.A., could be something we see this year. And if LeBron and Anthony Davis don't come back soon enough and don't play enough regular season games to get their legs underneath them, and they're not ready to play 42 minutes a game round one, the Lakers are not getting out of the Western Conference. I can tell you that right now. The only way they get out of the West is if they are playing 42-plus minutes a game because that's their only fighter's chance. That's their only fighter's chance. I'm going to tell you that right now. You can mark that down. But in terms of the Lakers situation, they need to get back as soon as possible, but they cannot be rushed. They got to get back at 100% healthy and be ready to go right from the get-go. But we got one more topic today before I wrap up today's show, and that's the Golden State Warriors. That's Steph Curry. Steph Curry drops 53 last night, passes Will Chamberlain for the all-time scoring leader in Warriors history. Steph Curry is a guy who is the best point guard in the NBA by far, a top two to three point guard in NBA history. And now we could call him Mr. Warrior being the all-time leading scorer for that franchise. He changed the game of basketball. He changed the way young people play the game of basketball, changed the way college players play the game of basketball, and certainly played the entire dynamic of the NBA. Since he broke out in 2015, his first MVP, and especially 2016, where he had one of the greatest regular seasons, if not the greatest regular season in NBA history. They changed the dynamic of the NBA shooting the three ball. Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time, and it's not very close, and we all know that. But Steph Curry needs, again, a better playoff legacy to be a top 10 great. I think Steph Curry right now is a top 15 all-time great. I do. But the finals MVP, not having that, is not helping his case. He needs to prove that he could close. He could hit the big shot in the playoffs. Steph Curry being the greatest shooter of all time is 0-8 in game time or winning shots in the regular season, excuse me, in regulation or overtime in a playoff game. And that's the greatest shooter ever. He needs to have more clutch moments. In 2015, sure, people like to argue that he should have won the MVP over Iguodala, but Iguodala locked up LeBron in game four, and that's why he really got it in his defense. Sure, okay. But it's 2016, he had the choke job, and in 2017, 2018, Kevin Durant pulls up, and it's a wrap. The Warriors need to get back to winning, being a championship caliber team, and we know what, what, what they're missing, and that's Klay Thompson, his sidekick. Once he got the Splash Bros going, then the Warriors could be back. But I think Steph Curry has potential to be an all-time great, but the one thing on his legacy that he is missing is a Finals MVP. And, yes, the Finals MVPs do matter. Sure, people are going to say he's a three-time champion, he's – been in the playoffs X amount of years, this and that. But if he wants to be an all-time great, in terms of a top 10 all-time great, rather, I think a finalist MVP is the icing on the cake. And then he could retire as that dude and be a top two point guard in the history of the NBA. We know Magic Johnson, of course, is the best point guard of all time. And right behind, and right behind him is probably Zeke, Isaiah Thomas, 
the bad boy Pistons. Or you could say Steph Curry's that number two spot. But to solidify Steph as the second best point guard of all time and being a top 10 all time great, he needs that final 70 110%. That's the last thing he's missing. Show that he could carry a team to a championship. Steph's averaging over 30 points a game this year, giving you close to six assists, a decent playmaker. People try to say that he's in the MVP conversation, but the Warriors not winning enough games. That's why he's not going to win it. And he's having a great season. Hopefully he could sneak the Warriors into the playoffs, but to be a top 10 great finals MVP. That's going to wrap up today's show. Thank you again for following, uh, for watching the Falco Takeaway. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the Falco Takeaway on Instagram and YouTube to check out more of my content. Again, I appreciate everyone tuning in. Let me know in the comment section below what you think of each topic I talked about. Have a great day. See you next week. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.